Let's open our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 11. We're only looking at two verses. I've entitled the morning's message, Those Who Are Wise. Proverbs chapter 11, of course, Solomon is the author. Uh, Most of this is being directed to his sons or son. Verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. And if the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. As we get into um, the study of the Proverbs, the literary form of these Proverbs is mostly set in what we call couplets. The two clauses of the couplets are generally related to each other, but what has been termed parallelism, according to Hebrew poetry, where the Hebrew poetry is um, attained by repeating or contrasting a thought. Let me give you a couple of examples just in the verses what we just read here. We have a contrast between those who are wise and win souls, and then it's the wicked which will be recompensed and they'll receive their own reward. One that would be more um, easy to understand is Proverbs 1 verse 7, where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then it's contrasted that those being wise, but fools They despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, as we make our way through the Bible, we're going to see it in the New Testament too, where there's this Hebrew poetry isn't like our poetry where we have a rhyme to it, but it's it's this couplets of contrasting thoughts. And we're going to see that this morning as uh, we make our way through um, the Proverbs. Uh, Both Both are going to be rewarded. The wise man is going to be rewarded. Uh, He who wins souls is wise. He'll be recompensed. The word recompense there in 31 actually means to be rewarded. But if that's true, then it's contrasted with how much more are the wicked going to be rewarded. And what we have, of course, in view here is indeed um, God's judgment. Um, Looking towards that, I'm going to have you turn right away this morning following the thought of those who are wise, winning souls, I'd like you to turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 12, and a very important book, the book of Daniel, but Daniel 12 in particular. Daniel is so important for two reasons, and that is it gives us to the day when Jesus would come to the earth the first time. We have that in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 12, we have the very day Jesus will come the second time. Yeah, you heard me correctly, and I'll explain that when we get to it. So let's pick it up and just read verse 1 of Daniel chapter 12. It says, at the time, is at the time of the end, Michael will stand up, that great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. There will be a time of great trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people will be delivered, everyone who's found written in the book. Now, the context is clearly talking about the Jewish people. Michael, according to the book of Jude, is referred to as an archangel. I believe there were three, but Michael's the only one who's really titled an archangel. He's a heavyweight. He's one with great authority. 
And what this is, is a prophecy that's not yet fulfilled, but will be fulfilled during the second half of the Great Tribulation period. When it says a time of trouble, well, another place it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus referred to it in Matthew 24 as a time of trouble that has never been nor will ever be. And it's right after he's talking about this event called the abomination of desolation. So my point is, what we just read in verse 1 is not going to be completed. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read uh, Revelation chapter 12, just three verses, 7, 8, and 9. Verse 7 says, and war broke out in heaven. I Just let that settle in for a second. Such a thought. War breaking out in heaven. And Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and his angels. We read in just a couple verses before that two-thirds or one-third of the angels rebelled during the fall with Lucifer. Uh, The outcome of that battle in verse 8, but they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So, you know, it blows people's minds sometimes when I tell them that the devil is in, is in heaven. And they go, what, the devil's in heaven? And I go, yeah, the, the devil's in heaven. Just read the book of Job. That's what you read. And they were the sons of God, came, presented themselves, and, and uh, Lucifer was among them. But there's coming a time that um, Michael is going to stand up. and says, enough, enough. You're out of here. And there's a war and there's a battle. And the outcome is that he, there's no place for him any longer. Verse 9, so the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world and was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. All right, that's just verse 1. What we're going here for is verses 2 and 3. So let's read them together. Now, uh, there's a, a time gap not only between verses 1 and 2 here, but also between verses 2 and 3, and I'll explain that. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Again, I want to point out a contrast. We have those that are going to awake to everlasting life and rewards at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore, but others are going to face the reality of their own shame and their own contempt, and it's going to be everlasting. And so that's a very sobering thought. Um, It should strike fear into anybody that hasn't made their their peace with the Lord. Now, verse 3. But those who are wise, and now we get back to wisdom, but those who are wise, they're going to shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Well, this is what Solomon is telling his son, that um, uh, back in, in Proverbs, those who are wise, if you're a wise person, you'll see that the most... Uh, wise thing you can do in your life is be involved in somehow bringing people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Good time for an amen. amen. That's wisdom. And if, if you meet, lead many, 
the Bible says that you're going to actually stick out. You're going to shine like the stars forever. I was listening to Chuck talk about this one time. And he says, you know, some, some people are a flash in a pan. They're here one day, make a big to-do, but then after a short period of time, they're just, they're just gone. And they're not enduring and not persevering. And he likened it to fireworks. He says, you go to the fireworks, and everybody likes to go to the fireworks, and big flashes, and a lot of uh, lights, and explosions. But let's face it, after a half an hour, 45 minutes, it's over. And then the sky sort of clears, and then you see billions and billions of God's stars that have been there since he put them there. Counts them, knows them by name. Those that are one, it says here, those that lead many to righteousness, like the stars, they'll be forever and ever. There'll be people that you infected in a good way by sharing the gospel um, that will be a part of your consciousness. This is how it happened to me. What's the first thing you usually do when you, when you meet somebody for the first time that's a believer? Well, how did you get saved? Well, it was my Sunday school teacher. Well, it was Billy Graham. There was a guy I worked next to. And that person will be a special person in your life for the rest of your life. Another good time for an amen. You're grateful to that person, aren't you? Because they made all the difference in your eternity. And so imagine having a whole bunch of people that I'm grateful for that guy, for that gal, because God used you to bring me into a saving knowledge of Christ. And my life is different because of you. I feel that way about Billy Graham. And uh, I was the instrument that the Lord used to get a hold of me. So winning souls is wise. Well, it prompts the question, what must a person then do in order to have salvation? I never want to take anything for granted. I know I'm preaching to the choir here at Calvary. But we are live streaming, and so there's other people that are just surfing, and, and maybe they don't know. So let's turn to Acts chapter 16. There's many examples that we could use this morning, but I like this one. I don't think there's enough talk today about what it really means to be a Christian. And if you're going to get on this narrow path, with it comes difficulty, trials, and suffering. And it's not talked about. And a lot of places today, it's just all that God can do for you and not really counting the cost of following the Lord. Let's pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 16. The setting is Paul's on a missionary journey, and he's in Derby and Lystra and traveling. He's in, here's a call in Macedonia, and they were there in Thyatira. And now in verse 16, it says, It happened as he went to prayer that a certain slave girl, she was possessed with a spirit of divination that met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Now, sometimes when we talk about a demon-possessed person, you think of somebody who's out of control, really whacked out, speaking with a gravelly voice, doing weird things. That wasn't the case here at all. This is what we might um, call some, well, in the Old Testament, it's a familiar spirit. And a familiar spirit somehow has the ability to see through time dimensions and actually correctly uh, tell you your fortune and tell you what is going to happen to you. It's biblical. It's right here. And this girl followed Paul around and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High, God, 
who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. Here she's got a, a demon <laughs> heralding Paul. Paul didn't think too much of it. And this they did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, notice not to the girl, but to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he came out, notice it's in the masculine. Uh, There's no female references of angels or fallen angels. It's always in the masculine. And he came out that very hour. Interesting to me. You know, it could have came out immediately, but it doesn't say that. And when her masters, in other words, her pimps, I would say, the ones she worked for, and when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged him into the marketplace to the authorities, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs which are not lawful for us, and being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitudes rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer, keep them securely. And having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with with stocks. Oh, the joys of following Jesus. Just follow Paul's life. He goes to this town, what happens? Gets beat up, thrown in jail. Gets up, goes to the next town, what happens? Gets beat up and thrown in jail. Goes to the next town, what happens? He gets beat up and thrown in jail. That's, that's the life of Paul. And so how do I respond to this? Lord, I gave my life to you, and every time I do something, I get in trouble or I get beat up. This is what Paul did. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I love you, Lord. That's what they were doing, worshiping the Lord and uh, praising God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Gang, just listen for a second. Um, You are not exempt uh, for trials and persecutions. Amen? All right, but always know that somebody's watching. How are you going to handle this one? Here, these guys had snot beat out of them, thrown in, locked up, and what do they hear as they're being observed? Worship songs. They're worshiping. What kind of effect do you think that has on a, on a, on a person that's holding it? We're about to find out. And while they were worshiping, suddenly there was a great earthquake to take the foundation of the prison, were shaken, the doors were opened, and all the chains came loose. Well, there's angels working, but you're just not seeing them. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep, remember he's the guy that said, you got the charge, make sure they're secure. And seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword, was about to kill himself. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, don't do that, we're here. And then he called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? So the question is, how does one get saved? How does one become a Christian? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, let's make something clear here, Dad. Just because you get saved, it doesn't mean necessarily that your wife and your kids are going to follow suit because they have free will. Amen? But being the leader of the house, you have that influence. And it was true in my family. Uh, when Dad got saved, everybody else except one brother became, became believers because Dad started going to church, went to a Bible-believing church. And the family followed suit, and one by one, they all came to the Lord. Let's take it a step further. And said, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, who were in the house. They gave a Bible study, explained what they did, and what they had committed to. And he took them that same hour of the night, the, 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 um, the guard, and he cleaned them up. That's Paul and Silas, cleaned their stripes, and immediately, and all of his uh, family were baptized. Well, why should they be baptized? Well, Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the, the gospel, then what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One week from today, we're having our annual baptism. And um, my question is, have you been baptized since you have been a believer? And if not, why not? Okay, I'll just leave that at that. People ask me, well, why should I be baptized? And I only have one answer, because Jesus said so. And that's the reason. So if you haven't been, uh, next week at the St. Pierre's, we're going to be out there. We look forward to it once a year. And so if you haven't been, let me encourage you this morning. Um, Here was a family. Dad gets saved The whole family gets saved, and then they were baptized. Verse 34, and when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God and all of his household. Now, I'd like you to read the rest of this later, because it's great. Because the guys that had them thrown into prison, the magistrates, they said they were Romans. And um, they go and tell the jailer, you can let those guys go now because somehow they found out they were Romans. Paul says, no, you have them come and tell me, because I'm a Roman, and they laid stripes on me, and no Roman lays stripes on another Roman. And so I want them, I just like the chutzpah of of Paul here. He says, no, you tell those guys to come and talk to me, and tell them to say, pretty please, and then I'll go. Otherwise, I'm not. So if you read the rest of the chapter, that's how that comes out. Now, They had one message when it came to the question, what must I do to be saved? But it was through observation on how they lived their Christian life when when they're getting uh, beat up, thrown into prison. They didn't murmur. They didn't complain. They sang worship songs. And um, that's powerful to see how that, and basically saying, "I, I want what you got, and how do I get it? Well, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Acts 4 says, nor is there salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. I'm going to quote a verse, and one everybody knows here, but I want to concentrate on one word, the most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. I want to get back to the word perished. Because back in Proverbs 11, verse 31, it says that the wicked are going to receive their recompense, remember, or their reward. Well, the word perish there, what I don't want you to misunderstand, is that it does not mean seek to exist after you die. Because the truth of the matter is, no one ever dies. There is a false doctrine out there today that's called annihilationism. Annihilationism is simply the idea that when you die, you're dead. That's all there's to it. You cease to exist, and your soul is annihilated, and you cease, and you are no more. That is a false teaching, and it is a false doctrine. And uh, to prove my point, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. Last Sunday I was in uh, uh, Arizona, as some of you know, and um, John Higgins was out of town, so he asked me to fill in, and um, I was honored to do so. And I actually happened to touch on this particular, I was talking about the order of the resurrection. And um, in going through the order of the resurrection, I pointed out here in Luke um, 16 that there was a resurrection, I can't spend a lot of time going into this, but my point is what happens in contrast between a person who's saved and goes to, to this case, paradise, and one who is lost and goes to Sheol or hell. Let's pick it up in verse 19. It's called the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. It is not a parable. Parables never use proper names, and we have a name in here. So we're going from a parable to a true story that happened. Verse 19 says, There was a certain man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar whose name was Lazarus, who was full of sores, who was laid at his gate, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell down from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died. And notice, immediately, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And I'm just going to stop here, and without getting into an in-depth study like I did last week in Arizona, um, we're told in Ephesians 4, verse 8, that before Jesus ascended, he first descended, into the lower parts of the earth, and he led captivity captive. What does that mean? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about the Old Testament saints. It says they died, but they died not having received the promise. They were looking for a city whose maker and builder was God. So they they died, but they couldn't go to heaven. So if they couldn't go to heaven, where did they go? Well, they went to this place right here called Abraham's bosom. Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man's going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, what was he doing? Well, he was letting the captives free. Well, who are the captives? Those who are waiting for Jesus to make that trip to hear the gospel. And we find, remember the, the, the thief on the cross, the one that believed on him? 
And he said, Lord, please remember me when you go into your kingdom. He says, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. And in the Hebrew, um, paradise and Abraham's bosom are one and the same. So what Jesus was telling the thief on the cross, today, I'm going to take you, you're going to be with me in Abraham's bosom. All right, let's take it a step farther. And so the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died, and he was simply buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. What? He still can see? He still is conscious? He's aware of who Abraham is? Then he cried out, saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So much for the annihilation of the soul. So much for um, once, you're, it's, once you're dead, you're dead. That's not true. Once you're dead, you're eternally sealed with that fate. The Bible says once to die and then the judgment. But Abraham said, son, remember. What? You're in Hades and now you can still remember things? Evidently. That in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you're tormented. Lest I be misunderstood. This does not mean rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven, right? Many a godly men are wealthy and God has blessed them. And uh, many a poor man um, don't have faith either. We're told to warn those that are wealthy that they don't put their trust in uncertain riches. All right, and then he, Abraham explains in verse 26, and he says, besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here cannot, nor can those from here pass to us. Now, can you imagine having eternal regret? This hit, hit me right between the eyes this week as I was meditating on this verse. This guy has regret, and it's eternal, and there's absolutely nothing he can do about it. Eternal regret. And he says, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they come to this place of torment. And um, this is interesting to me because that concern for witnessing, he wasn't wise. He didn't consider his own eternity, much less his family members. One of the reasons I wanted to go here is to show the finality of uh, what could happen to any one of us at any time. And then you have no more chances. And uh, things, you, you might have regrets, so oh, I knew I should have talked to that guy. I had that opportunity then and I let it pass. I hope it pricks us a little bit when we have loved ones. In this case, it was five brothers. And he says, I have five brothers, and please uh, have somebody witness to them, is the word we would use, lest they come to this place of torment. Reality had set in. And he knew the road that they were on. And Abraham said, well, you know, they have Moses and the prophets. We'd say today, well, they got the word of God. Let them hear the word of God. And they said, no, I know my brothers. But if somebody would go from the dead, then they would, what's the word he uses? Repent. A word he never did himself. 
If they saw a miracle, then they would repent. (laughs) Isn't it interesting? There was a guy named Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. And what did it do? Did everybody get saved when they saw that? No. Split the crowd right down the middle. A lot of them did. But not the scribes and the Pharisees. They went running back to Jerusalem. Said, Lazarus is alive. Now we not only got to kill Jesus, but we got to kill this Lazarus guy too. People are believing on him. And so, just because you see a miracle, and by the way, in this generation, this is the one thing four times that Jesus says look out for. Look out for false teachers, and look out for false miracles and signs and wonders, Matthew 24. And so you can have the miracles, but they can be deceptive. Verse 31, but he said to them, if they do not hear the Bible, the prophets, neither they will be persuaded though one was raised from the dead. So we have no guarantees about the rest of this day, gang. I mean, it can happen at any time to anybody. And uh, going home from church, you can get in a car accident. You might have a heart attack tomorrow. And I'm not trying to put a fear trip on it. I'm just this reality that as I read this text right here, I don't want you to have eternal regrets. And so if you have unfinished business with family and friends and things that you want to say, do it. <laughs> because uh, um, it's not that, um, in this case, it would be in heaven, but uh, the, for those that were lost, all, all, all chances of ever having them reached were gone. All right, let's go back just a couple pages and make the point of, again, contrasting wisdom with foolishness. And here's a guy that didn't know that his number was up that day. Pick it up in verse 13. This is a parable of the rich fool. Then one of the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And then he said to him, Take heed and beware of covetousness, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plenty. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? I have no room to store my crops. So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns, I'll build greater, and there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods, Goods laid up for many years, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, what? You fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? When you die, how much can you take with you? Answer, absolutely nothing. And then the last verse, 21, so he who lays up treasures for himself is not rich towards God. So we have here a picture of a foolish man. He lived, he lived for today, sha-la-la-la-la-la, for today, that kind of stuff. Where that came from, I don't know, it's just back there. Poor theology. You live for the kingdom, and if you're wise, Jesus says, wherever your heart is, wherever your heart is, that's where your treasures are really going to be. What's really important? What's more valuable than one human soul? 
each one unique, each one different. You're one of a kind. That's why you're special. There's no two like you. And if you were the only one, the Lord would deem you so special that he still would have came, still would have died on the cross, just because you're that important and valuable to him. All right, back to Daniel chapter 12. A little change of thought here. That's the foolish. Let's talk about the wise. Daniel 12, picking it up now in verse 4 through the end of the chapter, we read, this is the end of of, um, the, the visions of Daniel, these last 10 verses or so. And the Lord says to Daniel in verse 4, but you, Daniel, I want you to shut up the words and I want you to seal the book, notice, until, until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge will increase. Well, that certainly is true. And then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on the river bank and the other on the other river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the water of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? And I heard the man clothed in a linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, singular, times, plural, and half a time. Now you find that phraseology repeated in the book of Revelation. And you can't understand Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel. A time is one year, times, plural, is two years. Now you have three and half a time is three and a half years, used over and over again, described in different ways in Revelation. Sometimes it'll say 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Sometimes it's 42 months. Sometimes it's time, times, and half a times, all saying the same thing. And the reason it's doing so, because something very significant happens in the very middle of the tribulation, and that's called the abomination of desolation. It's also the time that Michael has it out with the angels of Lucifer, a lot going on. And now the question is, Daniel says, I wanna know all about it. So one angel says to the other one, how long is it gonna be for times, times, and half a times? That's how much time the devil's gonna have possessing the Antichrist. Although I heard, I did not understand. And then I said, my Lord, what will be the end of these things? Daniel wants to know. Inquiring minds want to know. But he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words, notice, are closed and they're sealed. But that's not the end of the sentence. Until the time of the end. Oh, interesting. Many shall be made white, refined. The wicked will do wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, but now it's contrasted with, but the wise will understand. The wicked won't understand, but the wise somehow will understand. Understand what? Things that were sealed in Daniel's times, as we see them being unsealed, we're going to get it because of God's wisdom. And then he gives us this, this is where you can tell when Jesus is coming the second time. From the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, it's an event called the abomination of desolation. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation 
spoken of by Daniel the prophet. He says, understand. So now here we have the event taking place and the abomination of desolation is set up. Then he says, there shall be 1,290 days. What happens after 1,290 days? Well, you have the second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, how do you know that, Dwight? Because it says, those blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. That's 45 days later. Well, what happens then? If you're taking notes, write down Matthew 25. And it says, immediately after the days of the tribulation, the Lord comes and he separates the sheep from the goats. And there's a 45-day period of time of judgment because some people made it out of the tribulation alive that didn't take the mark of the beast. They're the sheep. Others took the mark of the beast and they're still alive. They're going to be judged. Second half of Matthew 25. Be a Berean, check it out. But my point is that Daniel 12 gives us the day, if you're around during the tribulation, mark your calendar, 1,290 days later, second coming of Jesus Christ. It shouldn't surprise us because Daniel 9 gives us to the day of the first coming of Jesus Christ. He says, but this is how it ends, but you go your way, Daniel, till the end, for you will rest and arise to your inheritance at the end of days. My point in reading this last part here, none of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. Things are going to be um, unsealed And now we'll bring you up to date with something that's happened just within the last two days of being unsealed. I'm teasing just a bit. Go to Matthew 25 and we'll work our way up to it. Matthew 25 is the parable, interesting, of ten virgins. Five are wise, five are foolish. Again, we have a contrast. All right, Matthew 25. Notice a contrast. The kingdom of heaven shall be like unto ten virgins who took their lamps, went out to meet their bridegroom, and five of them were wise and five were foolish. The contrast. Those who were foolish took their lamps, but they took the oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels and their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. I believe this is a reference to the church because we're the bride of Christ. Somebody want to say amen to that? And so, um, being the bride of Christ, we're supposed to be watching and looking for his coming. Now, not everyone who calls himself a Christian is a Christian. Well, how do you know that, Dwight? Well, some will come to the Lord someday and say, Lord, we did this in your name, and we did this in your name, and we did this in your name. And the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So it's possible to have the name Christian without actually being born again. When you're born again, what happens? Well, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. Now, some commentators will debate about what the oil is. I personally believe it's a reference to the Holy Spirit and they're Christians. But unfortunately, there were Christians that had a little sleep in their eyes and they needed to be Woken up a little bit. And so at midnight, something happened. A cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming. Something was happening, and there was this awareness that it's late. Go out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. 
But the wise answered, saying, No, lest we should not have enough for ourselves, but you go rather to those who sell and buy for yourself. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went into him to the wedding. The door was shut. That reminds me of Noah's Ark, because there was one door, and the Bible says the Lord shut the door. Afterwards, the other virgins came and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, as surely I say to you, I don't know you. I do not know you. And the, the whole point of the parable is, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Why is this verse important? Because I just told you the very day Jesus is coming. This can only be a rapture verse. No man knows the day or the hour of the rapture. But the day of the first coming and second coming of the Lord is clearly taught in the book of Daniel. Again, be a good Berean, do your own homework, but uh, this can only mean to me to be a rapture verse. So watch for the signs. Well, what signs? Chuck used to also have this great saying, um, well, you know, and that's the way he'd say it, well, you know, (laughs) when you see Christmas decorations, you know Thanksgiving is right around the corner. (laughs) Think about it. Isn't that true? Yeah, as soon as you see the Christmas decorations, Thanksgiving's right around the corner. Well, the same thing is, when you see the things that are taking place in the world today, false teaching, economic disaster right around the corner, $18 trillion in debt, um, lawlessness abounding, um, the love of many growing cold, what's happening in the Middle East, and I can't even keep up with it, but just to show you how current Things are, and quickly, things, now I'm just going to go to current events. Why? Because the Lord told Daniel, I'm going to seal some things up. And no, none of the wicked will understand. But if you're wise and you're watching, like the ten virgins, then you're going to be noticing things from a biblical perspective that the foolish or unbelieving who don't know the word of God, they're not going to get it. But those who are wise will understand. What I'm about to put up on a screen happened two days ago, okay? This is the commander, Qasam Suleimani. Um, he is the leader of the Iranian Revolutionary Elite Guard. Two days ago, on the 7th, um, top Iranian commander, and there it is. What We should have that in there. Here he is, right here. Doesn't look like Sean Connery, he does to me a little bit. (laughs) He is the guy who reports to the Ayatollahs. He is the commander. And we had an update on him, but he's the leader. And just two days ago, he had um, a meeting with Putin. So now we have Iran, the the leader of the army, meeting with Putin. Well, why should that be of any interest to us? Well, if you know anything about Ezekiel 38 and the coming war, we should see signs leading up to that, and this was a big one. For years, we've been denying that we'd ever give Iran any capacity whatsoever to proceed in their nuclear program, as they've been telling us it's all for peaceful purposes. And they'd say that one day, and the next day they'd say, no, we're really building bombs because we want to destroy Israel. 
And um, even after we sign the deal, here's, here's the next one, that, uh, number two. It's called, it comes out of the American thinker. This is Obama's deal. $150 billion to Iran to destroy Israel with conventional arms. $150 billion. Now let me contrast that with he says that he's Israel's friend. Iran's deal was worth more than all the U.S. aid to Israel since 1948. Just think that through. And I'm going to read just one paragraph here from this article. The Iran deal will provide Iran with a cash windfall as sanctions are eased and assets are unfrozen. The total amount is estimated to be as high as $150 billion. If so... The Iranian deal would give more cash to Iran than $124.3 billion the U.S. has given in total aid to Israel since 1948. Two days after the deal, the Ayatollah came out and says, we are still dedicated to the utter destruction and annihilation of the state of Israel. And I'm just thinking, how dumb can we be? And how incompetent can we be? And how can these things be happening? Well, Christian, we should not be um, surprised at all because that's exactly what my Bible says is going to take place. Who are the key players? Iran and Russia. Who's meeting two days ago? The military leader of Iran sitting down with Putin. And um, boy, to be a fly on the wall during that meeting, huh? As the signs are being unsealed, there's just one more that'll start to... um, close in just as looking at the signs and that's the importance of the Ukraine in all this. We don't get much news but uh, let's put the Ukraine up there. Um, All the signs are being unsealed but we just found another piece of the puzzle that would bring about what we refer to as the hook that would bring Russia uh, into the land of Israel thus fulfilling um, Ezekiel 38, you know, for years we've speculated, well, what's it going to be? What, what, what uh, hook is going to be put in the jaw of Russia to draw them in? What would make them do such a thing? Russia is totally dependent on its export of natural gas and oil to Europe. The next map I'm going to put up is a map of the pipelines that go through the Ukraine from Russia to Europe. And in it, around 80% of Russia's natural gas is exported to the European Union. It has to go through the Ukraine. Now, they're dependent on that happening. So you've been watching. It hasn't been making a lot of news, but Russia did shoot down a Ukrainian plane. Half of... um, By the way, Kiev, the capital of um, Ukraine, was once the capital of where Russia started. That was it. The next, the only problem that Russia could ever face if they ever had any competition, they're the number one exporter of natural gas in the world. And Europe is totally dependent upon it. And um, with the tensions that are taking place in Ukraine right now, The EU is looking for other places to get their energy. Now, the next map I'm going to point out is this find off the coast of Israel of um, the gas and oil fields 
that have just been discovered recently within the last five or six years. For years, I would go to Israel, and I, I believe that the Bible taught that they were going to have a, be a major source of oil in the last days. Well, they have 122 trillion cubic feet of recover, recoverable gas. The, the EU is currently negotiating with uh, Israel because of the uncertainty that they have with Russia. Russia is totally dependent. Their economy is about ready to collapse anyway. If they have competition, and now there's a new pipeline being laid from Europe to these uh, fields, they've already signed a billion-dollar deal with, with Jordan. So now that's in the equation. I think something from Daniel has just been unsealed and a piece of the puzzle. And what I'm about to put up next, I have to give credit where credit is due. This is... Robert Cogden. The name of this book is Russia and the Ukraine, Setting the Stage for Ezekiel's Prophecy. He's so much in demand as a speaker. He's brilliant. He would love to come to our prophecy conference, but he's got two conferences the same weekend, but we're going to Skype him in anyway. So he'll be a part of our conference, and what I'm about to quote is his material, but I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. Russia's need of the Ukraine, and you can read it right along with me. Russia needs a free flow of energy to its European market in order to fuel the Russian economy. Number two, Russia needs a a security buffer zone, the Ukraine, between it and the European Union. Number three, Russia needs to prevent NATO from bordering Mother Russia, substantiated by Europe's history of invading Russia. Napoleon tried it, he failed because of Ukraine. Hitler tried it, he failed because he couldn't keep his supply lines because Ukraine is so big. Number four, Russia needs warm water access to the Mediterranean Sea and the world beyond for its naval and commercial shipping of its energy and its commodities. All right, the next one I'm going to put up is from the Europeans' perspective, and this is the European Union's need of the Ukraine. There's a tug of war going on over the Ukraine. And what the picture shows here is it's split in half. All right, number one. Europe needs the assurance and the security of energy transferred within the Ukraine that it's free of Russian interference until it can find alternative sources of energy from Israel and other Mediterranean nations. Number two. Europe needs a stable Ukraine Grain source to feed European markets, one free of Russian interference. Number three, Europe needs the Ukraine in order to achieve its manifest destiny, and that is a world empire like the Roman Empire. That was Robert Congdon's first book, The the European Superstate. It was a bestseller. Number four, Europe needs to expand NATO into the Ukraine in order to protect Europe from a strengthening Russia, especially in response to the growing isolationism and military reduction of the United States of America. And finally, number five, Europe needs the Ukraine as a buffer from the growing alliances between Iran, Syria, and Russia. What happened two days ago? The main general sat down with Putin. So, while history and current events are always subject of interest, 
Even more important is a biblical view of events on how events might be setting the stage to prophecy fulfillment. Biblically, the land of Russia, Ukraine, the Caucasus, Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Israel are all related to a future uh, war prophesied by Ezekiel in chapters 38 and 39. It is for this reason that Christians need to understand the current stage setting in light of the biblical eventuality of war between Israel and this alliance of nations to the north, the, the nations in today's news. The tension of today are clear forerunners of those events and remind all readers that fulfillment of Bible prophecy is now feasible in our days. Somebody want to say amen? And we're just watching it unfold. And like Jesus said, it'll be a woman with birth pains. When it begins to happen, it's going to be bam, bam, bam. They'll grow in intensity and they will uh, become uh, more fierce before it actually happens. There's one more quote that um, I want to attribute to him because Robert makes good, good discernment concerning the rapture in reference to the Ezekiel 38 war. So I'm quoting him right now. He says the first option, that the attack, Ezekiel 38, will take place before the rapture of the church violates the principle of the imminency of the rapture. Imminency simply means that it could happen at any moment. I wish it would happen right now. (laughs) But that's imminency. And that's a trump card when it comes to the Lord could come at any time. For only God knows, the Father knows when it will take place. Again, the point this morning was we know the first and second coming. But we don't know the time of the rapture of the church. No man does. The next event on God's prophetic calendar for the church is the rapture. This imminency has been the comfort and blessed hope of the church throughout church, the church age. Furthermore, since the church and national Israel are two separate entities in God's plan for history, and God will turn his attention to national Israel after the rapture of the church, the battle of Gog Magog involving only Israel and not the church must take place after the church is removed. Additionally, the context of Ezekiel 38 and 39 places these events solely with those events involving the ultimate restoration of the national Israel, the reoccurring phrase 54 times uh, in the book of Ezekiel is, and then they will know that I am the Lord. But the big one is when God directly intervenes on Israel's behalf, then they will know. And then he says, thus to place the Gog, Magog during the church age is not consistent with scriptures, quote, unquote, from Robert Cogden. All right, I'm past my time and in trouble already. How do we get this wisdom? Well, simply in James 1, verse 5, it says, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God, and God will give it to him liberally. You have not because you ask not. These things can be searched out on your own, especially with the technology we have today. Wisdom, how do we attain it? Well, Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, from a child, you've known the scriptures. 
which are able to make you wise unto salvation. And so we get our wisdom where? We get it from the word of God. And then we read in Ephesians, therefore he says, wake up you who sleep, arise you from the dead, and, give, and Christ will give you light. See that you walk circumspectly. Notice the contrast, Don't, not as fools, but as wise. Redeem the time, because the days are evil. Amen to that one. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then finally, and I really mean finally, (laughs) Matthew 7, Jesus' own teaching on who is wise and who is a fool and the contrast between the two. Turn to it quickly, and we'll close with it. Matthew 7. It's only a couple verses long, and it is a parable. It's a parable of the two builders. Everything we've talked about this morning is from a biblical perspective. Nothing can stop it from happening. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but not my prophecies. It's got to be fulfilled. It's got to happen. Nothing can stop it. Verse 24, Jesus said, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, well, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house, but it didn't fall because it was founded on the rock. What was the difference? Believing the words of Jesus and doing them. However, not everyone who hears these sayings of mine and, and, and does not do them, I will liken him, contrast, as a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, and it fell and great was its fall. Paul and Silas, beat up, thrown into jail, they easily could have said, I didn't sign up for this, I'm out of here. Instead, they just worshiped the Lord. And as a result, people were watching. And they were watching how they handled life. And they said, the jailer said, I want what you got. What must I do to be saved? All you have to do, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. My friends, if you've never done that, as, as Paul would say, I plead with you. You know, give your life to the Lord so that you don't have regrets. Got a finished business that you need to take care of it? Take care of it. The fruit of a righteous man is a tree of life. Proverbs 11, verse 30. And he who wins souls is wise. Amen? Let's stand because we are past our time. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. We want to be wise. We want to be those virgins that as we see things being unsealed, we want to be able to put those pieces together. And it's almost that declaration, that cry, behold, the bridegroom is coming. Lord, help us trim our lamps and help us be in that place of being ready so that when you do come, we'll be able to enter in. And Lord, finally this morning, I pray for any that are sitting on the fence from the issue of baptism to not sharing the gospel with others. Lord, help us see the wisdom that comes in winning souls for Christ. So we thank you for your word this morning. May you receive all the glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.